welcome to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you haven't joined us before, we're passionate about all things internal medicine and helping you become the best tech you can be. We'll be discussing interesting internal medicine diseases, how to work closely with pet parents, and how to become the go-to tech in your practice. Now, let's start the show. Welcome back. We're super excited that you are joining us again for this, our episode about DKA, diabetic ketoacidosis. This is episode number 10. So we are 10 episodes in, if you're listening to this. We are super excited that you have made the commitment to learning, continuing education and becoming better technicians because we all want that. We hope you're still doing well. I believe we're in the throes of the holiday season, so hopefully everybody's staying sane. I am Yvonne Brandenburg, and I am joined by Jordan Porter. Hey, girl. Hello. Again. Again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we are, we're super excited. When we recorded this, which is uh, first week of December, actually, I'm super excited that we, as of right now, we have over 500 downloads of our episodes, which is very exciting. Yay. <laughs> I know to Not most people count, out like, there daily. podcasts, <laughs> but, I mean, I may check multiple times in a day. Just, mm-hmm. just saying. Yeah. No, we don't. Yes, I totally do. <laughs> <laughs> so, but it's very cool that we actually have over 500 downloads. That means there's people out there that like us, Jordan. I know, man, if that's not like a boost to your self-esteem. <laughs> so <laughs> or, thank or they you. just like what we're talking about. Oh yeah. Yeah, but you got to like, like us a little bit in order to listen to what we talk about, right? To listen to our voices for over an hour on a drive or while doing chores. That's true. (laughs) Yes. So we have a couple of shout outs. First of all, Jordan, I dude, like, I feel kind of like a rock star kind of talked about us a little bit. I know. Um, So it's like vet tech famous. (laughs) Yeah, it's vet tech famous. So if you guys have, because obviously you're listening to our podcast, which means you like listening to podcasts. But um, if you have not checked out Vet Tech Cafe, by the way, you should definitely check it out. They're doing some cool stuff over there. They just started. They launched about the same time that we did. Mm-hmm. And um, they're doing like this cool interview style and talking about kind of all the things that that affect us as veterinary technicians, as veterinary professionals, which is really cool. And um, it's Jeff Bacchus and Dave Cowan and we super appreciate them because they, they, they've shared our podcast to their people, which is great. I know. Spreading the word. So we would like to share the love and spread the word of their amazing podcast. Yeah. So we'll put their link in the show notes as well um, for you to check out their podcast um, and help them get up and running too. Sure. So we also had a review from Nuclear Waste Sink Man. Nice. Um, says, thanks. This is one of my favorite podcasts. Very informative. Hosts have a way of explaining complicated diseases, which is super nice. We do appreciate all those reviews. It's nice to be kind of told that we're explaining things well. <laughs> so, Yeah. And that one's cool because that's on iTunes. Um, and we would love for you guys to review us on iTunes. Uh, it, it helps people see the podcast, which is really cool. Uh, and and iTunes, iTunes likes reviews. So yes. we would, we would 
sincerely appreciate it. Do we have any questions from our last couple of episodes that we needed to bring up? Not yet, I believe. So please go back and answer the questions and we'd be happy to reply to your questions or reply to your answers of our questions of the week from previous weeks. So please go back and look at those. You can find those questions of the week on internalmedicineforvettex.com under the podcast show notes. So if you look there, you can kind of see our previous questions of the week from all the previous nine episodes and we can shout you out. Sounds perfect. So I think with, without anything else to go over, we can just dive into this week's episode, which is all about diabetic ketoacidosis. All right, cool. Here we go. Okay. So this week we will be discussing uh, DKA or diabetic ketoacidosis. We'll also touch on diabetic ketosis because there are a little bit of differences, but basically we treat them the same. All right. So (laughs) here we go into the wonderful world of DKA. (laughs) (laughs) This we're going to, we're going to see how this podcast episode goes. We're hoping to keep it into one because there will be a lot of references to the diabetes episodes, which were episodes Seven and eight. Seven and eight. So definitely um, if you haven't listened to episodes seven and eight, which are about diabetes, I probably would start with that first and then listen to DKA. But if you're super familiar with diabetes, you just want to dive into DKA, we can, you know, you can jump right in. So I just, so everybody knows some of the references that I use, I use the two that are kind of my Bibles, I guess you could say. So the canine and feline endocrinology book. And then the second book is Linda Merrill's uh, Small Animal Internal Medicine for Veterinary Technicians and Nurses. Again, if you don't have it, I don't understand why you don't. So get it. Get it. We have links for both those. (laughs) (laughs) It's super easy to get. You need it. Yeah. And honestly, if you want the book, if you are studying for your boards, for your VTS, talk to your clinic. Um, My clinic, they Mm -hmm. actually reimbursed me for a lot of the books that I bought while I was studying. So that's definitely an option. Okay. So one of the interesting facts that I learned, which there was definitely a rabbit hole that I went down, but uh, one of the interesting (laughs) facts I learned about diabetes and DKA was insulin itself actually wasn't available for people to use until the 1920s. Prior to that, people actually would die from DKA uh, because your body is not making insulin and, and so bad things happen and we'll talk about that. So the mortality rate is actually down to about 5% in humans. Most of the times, once a person is hospitalized, they can actually recover with hospitalization. The biggest complications are gonna be the concurrent diseases, which are actually gonna be very similar in veterinary medicine. And it's interesting then veterinary medicine, the, the decrease in mortality has also kind of corresponded um, mm-hmm. with the human medicine side too. Which I know we'll, I know we'll get into it, but I like DKs in the sense of like you set up the tree of life for them. Yeah. And like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's just like so rewarding to like have, oh, I'm OCD. So I like to label all my pumps and I label all my lines and like <laughs> everything's yeah. labeled. <laughs> and, and honestly, I think when you're dealing with these cases, that is probably the best time to be OCD because there's mm-hmm. so many things that you're going to be doing and you really need to be able to keep track of all of that. And it is, it is probably the most tech intensive 
I, I think of the internal medicine diseases is the DKA patients. Definitely. It's very, yeah, it's very like use all of your tech skills. Here's, you know, it's just good research to kind of, if you get one of those cases, go back and figure out why you're doing everything the way you're doing it. Yeah. So I, it, it was really interesting for me reading about DKA. Um, cause I knew I've, I've known some of these things kind of peripherally, but to actually kind of sink my teeth into it was kind of nice. So one of the things that we talk about is obviously ketones. <laughs> ketones are what de- defines this disease. So a ketone body is when, when the patient does not have enough insulin to use glucose it breaks down uh, it breaks down fat and releases fatty acids into the bloodstream and then that those fatty acids travel to the liver and then get oxidized and metabolized and stuff to an energy source that the body can use so that's why that's where they come from it's it, it was interesting to me that they naturally do occur in mm-hmm. most patients and most pets on a daily basis it's just when there's too much of them that's when that's when the problem happens. One of the interesting things um, about ketone bodies is so it's not just one molecule substance that actually forms the ketone bodies. So there's, there's four of them. There's a- acetoacetate, beta hydroxybutyrate. <laughs> I'm probably saying these wrong. Uh, acetone. And then um, there's some other ones as well, but those are kind of the big three. And it's interesting because if you, if you read the like names of them, they sound very acidic to me. So if you think about it, this is going to be the big thing about ketoacidosis is that it, things become too acidic for the body. So what happens is kind, and it's similar with just regular diabetes, but in diabetic ketoacidosis or diabetic ketosis, it's actually an extreme version of that. So the body feels like it's starving, right? The tissues are starving. They need energy cells. So that's where the adipose tissue, so your fat, releases those fatty acids. Then the liver says, okay, cool. We have starvation mode going on. So now we need to create the energy supply. So it takes those free fatty acids that are floating around in the bloodstream. It has a couple of things that it can do. First, it can actually take those fatty acids and make them into triglycerides. So if you think about it, we kind of talked about this a little bit with diabetes, your schnauzers, right? (laughs) That usually have high cholesterol um, that's, that's part of triglycerides, right? So th- they're also predisposed to getting diabetes, which is part of that as well. The other thing that can happen is your free fatty acids can be metabolized. And it's another big word via the tricarboxylic acid or TCA cycle. And what it does is it creates CO2 and water from the fatty acids. So we get a buildup of CO2 and some water created from that metabolism or it can make the ketone bodies so obviously what happens is if there's too much free fatty acids being released into the bloodstream there's only so much triglycerides so much co2 and water that it can make so the rest of it becomes ketones if that does that make sense that was a lot of big words (laughs) (laughs) right yeah i mean honestly you don't necessarily have to totally understand all the big words. Just know 
you take some fat because we can't <laughs> use our sugar. We're going to break down fat. And one of the big byproducts of that is going to be the ketones. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And that's too, like, if you see these diabetic patients, they start losing a bunch of fat and a bunch of muscle. This is part of that process because the body's going into starvation mode. Mm -hmm. And because I think what happens a lot of times, at least some of the patients that we see is people don't realize that their pets have become diabetic. They didn't notice the PUPD mm -hmm. and never had it checked out until their pets become like extremely ill and yeah. are DKA. So then they'll be like, yeah, it's been rapid weight, weight loss for over a month. And now that you mention it, yeah, I do think they are PUPD. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because they talked about in the history of these patients that they do come in, you know, obtunded or, you know, they just are yeah. horrible. Right. Yeah. And so they're like, oh no, they haven't been eating this last week. They haven't been drinking. But then you kind of talk to them a little bit more in depth of mm -hmm. a history. And like Jordan's saying, you know, we see all of a sudden that, oh no, they're actually drinking more and urinating more. If you go past this acute phase mm -hmm. to, you know, prior to that. With diabetes and DKA, one of the things that was interesting is they were talking about, so insulin deficiency and that some of these patients could be considered insulin deficient, even though if you were to take a measure a blood level of how much insulin is floating in the round in their blood, it may be of a normal level, but because the patient has developed insulin resistance, we actually need to give them a higher amount of insulin to get the same effect that they would have had before they became insulin resistant, which I thought was interesting. So we can't just measure how much insulin is in their blood. We, we have to measure their, their sugar level. So insulin resistance then can be caused by the increased circulation of those glucose counter-regulatory hormones, which if you kind of remember back into the anatomy and physiology, some of the, those counter-regulatory hormones are glucagon, epinephrine, cortisol, and growth hormone. Yeah. So and if we, if we talked about it, cause we talked about glucagon last in, in the episode seven and eight, yep. how glucagon is kind of the, the opposite of insulin. So the body says, Oh, we're low. We're going to make more glucagon. So if you think about it, it makes sense that that causes resistance to insulin if, if, you know, that's increased. And then cortisol, we talk about that with, mm -hmm. um, steroids. Yeah, exactly. Like that stress hormone and it's just a, it's a body steroid essentially that responds to stress, but that can definitely affect your patient's insulin and glucose levels. Yeah. And then, the increased pro-inflammatory cytokines can also cause insulin resistance. So these are, when I was reading them, they typically are like your tumor necrosis factor alpha and interleukin-6, which basically to me, it's inflammatory processes in the body. I think of um, cancer being an inflammatory thing. So those are, so those are things. And also pancreatitis, right? That's an inflammatory disease. So that also releases these these cytokines to, to cause insulin resistance. So again, it's the chicken and egg, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> diabetes, pancreatitis, what's going on? Well, and I think too, and then the increased plasma free fatty acids and amino acids, we touched on that kind of a few minutes ago, just with the liver producing extra fatty acids, then that's also going to kind of lead to your insulin resistance as well as, as well as metabolic acidosis, just 
kind of, if you go back into the cancer or the pancreatitis, they can become acidotic and that can affect their insulin levels as well. Yeah. And that's going to come into to play the metabolic acidosis. That's really going to come play, come into play with DKA because mm-hmm. that is a form of metabolic acidosis. So the problem is it becomes this vicious cycle where there's more acidosis, which causes more insulin resistance, which causes more acidosis. And it's, and that's why these patients end up not making out of the hospital be, if, or you know, before they came into the hospital, why they end up tanking so quickly is because the further down that rabbit hole they go, the worse off they get and the harder mm-hmm. it is to recover. So it's, it's really hard. So the further, further the, along they are in the process, the harder is it is for us to turn things around. Yeah. And I think we'll kind of get into it when we talk about like hospitalizing these patients, but that's why we set them up on a CRI so we can mm-hmm. adjust their insulin doses accordingly. So we can kind of better once we fix the acidosis, then the blood sugars aren't going to, you're not going to need just to give seven units of some insulin and it's going to be better. It's tailored to their needs during their time in the hospital. And that, and that kind of plays into, we talked about it a little bit in the diabetic episodes, but long-term managing these patients, you know, the, there will be adjustments in their insulin doses because we're not having all these insulin resistant things happening anymore. So the hopefully. insulin, <laughs> yeah, right. Hopefully. Um, so hopefully the insulin that we're giving them will start working better. So again, it's the body getting used to these adjustments. And so that, that, that level will change. Mm-hmm. One of the interesting things I, I also learned was the ketone itself versus glucose, it's a much smaller um, substance. So it has a lower molecular weight, which when it comes to kidneys and (laughs) loop of Henley and all those fun things, um, it, it, what basically what it means is more ketones actually can go out compared to glucose. But the other thing with ketones is it can take a lot of electrolytes and a lot of water and everything with it, which is why these patients become dehydrated so quickly because the ketones actually will pull more out of the body than just glucose. So once we kick into ketones being excreted, more stuff is flowing out, um, especially electrolytes. So another part of the liver creating ketones is when the ketones are actually made, hydrogen, um, ions, so H plus, hydrogen ions are created as well. So equal number of ketones to hydrogen ions. So this is where the the acidosis comes in because remember hydrogen ions, the more hydrogen ions that we have, the, the lower your pH. So the more acidotic things become. Part of the problem is with more hydrogen ions being produced, the buffering system in the, in the body. So like the bicarb and all that stuff, it can't keep up with it anymore. And so now we just keep creeping down the hydrogen ions, you know, in the blood and we become more and more acidotic. And do you remember, I, I, I used to remember this off the drop, like no problem, but do you remember what the normal pH for blood is? Oh shoot. I was thinking about (laughs) this the other day too. And I was like, I looked it up because I was like, I used to know it off the top of my head. So normal blood pH is 7.35 to 7.45. I was going to say like 7.6, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) 
And to our emergency and critical care people that are listening, they're making fun of us right now. Right. Um, <laughs> like, we know this. But yeah, so blood, your normal pH is 7.34 or 7.35 to 7.45. So it's a really, really narrow window. And so we get more acidotic the lower that pH number goes, um, which is kind of crazy. Um, so the, the lower the number we go, the more acidotic. And it's interesting because they were saying that some of our DKA patients, when they come in, they can be anywhere from 7.2, even down as low as 6.6, which is really scary because <laughs> anything below 7.0 is life-threatening and is a poor prognostic indicator. Um, so these guys are severely acidotic um, and we'll be... We'll be tackling that with fluids. All the fluids. <laughs> all, all the fluids. Oh, God. Could you imagine how crappy you would feel? I I just think of, like, um, the kidney patients because they yeah. are also acidotic and they feel like crap and they're vomiting. That's so, what I mean. Like, you just, yeah. oh, God. I couldn't and imagine. everything like, hurts, right? Then yeah. you, your pancreas gets more mad and then, you know, you're vomiting and it's just, it's 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 this crazy, vicious cycle, which is why these guys come in and they just feel miserable it is so rewarding though when they're like better yeah i love it they're like hey i'm back to normal well mostly not totally but mostly so kind of <laughs> to go along with that right we have dehydration we have loss of electrolytes which causes vomiting which causes more loss of water and more loss of electrolytes which makes your patient more acidotic so again it's just this it's this spiral. And so we have to stop the spiral. Yeah. Which is why they come in obtunded. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So you've got the severe acidosis that we talked about. We have obligatory osmotic diuresis. So your ketones are flushing things out. Your glucose is flushing things out. We are hyperosmotic. Um, so that's an issue. We're dehydrated, right? I don't, I don't know about you, but trying to get catheters in these guys. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It, it's hard. And sometimes we just start with like that preliminary catheter. Right. Like, I'm going to get this one in to get you hydrated and then we'll deal with all the other stuff. Right. Yet. Like these are like the perfect patients to put like a pick line or a central line yes. in. Yeah. Like, but unfortunately, like I never get to them fast enough. They always come <laughs> in through the ER. So right. like, You're like, like they're you. already like rehydrated and like alive. So I'm like, well, now I can't place a pick line on you because you're better. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, but these are the perfect patients to put pick lines in. Yeah. We'll talk about that more in hospitalization too. There's, there's options for that. The other big thing is because our electrolytes are just pouring out, we're going to have severe electrolyte derangement. So we need to fix that to get our patients healthy. And then if we don't step in, the, the body eventually can't compensate anymore in, in potential like death is what happens. Oh, only death. Only death. That's all. Yeah. 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 But again, we have insulin. We have fluids. We can fix things oh, as long you as imagine there's no concurrent stuff. Prior to the 1920s, like how miserable that would have been to die from that. Well, and I think they were saying that the, most of these patients died within a week. Oh, I imagine like, like it's the not body long. No. Well, which is good, I guess, in a sense, but still like i'm yeah. oh it'd yeah. be interesting to know but I don't not know, though. know at I, the same I time mean, <laughs> i don't know when because we just had one come in recently and it yeah. was 
it was like it looked dead i actually yeah. walked by the cage and i was like is it breathing and she was which is good but i can't imagine that they're they're really with it you know that's true yeah so, you're probably right they get into that like the body kind of shuts some brain activity down yeah that'd be it'd be horrible though yeah but I do, so getting a history on these patients is pretty important, especially those newly diagnosed diabetics, or like I said previously, like those ones where the owners were just unaware that they were exhibiting symptoms yeah. because it does happen. So, and people feel really bad about it. And I know some people can get a little judgy about how you didn't notice your pet was doing that, but life's busy. We get it. But you do want to ask previous history, not just within the last week when the pet became critical, you want to ask how have they been acting for the last month or two? How have they been, how much have they been drinking? How much have they been urinating? What's their attitude been like appetite off and on? Were they extremely ravenous and then they just stopped eating? Those are all pretty important things to discuss. And then if they were previously diagnosed with diabetes and it just wasn't well managed, that's pretty important too. So you do want to try to find like a good way to discuss how much insulin have they been giving? How has the pet been doing with the insulin? What the yeah. owners have been noticing at home? I was going to say, we talked about this in the last episodes. Mm -hmm. I mean, you need to be following up with these. This is not just like a set it and forget it thing. Yeah. In fact, I think the one that we had um, this week, she was previously diagnosed and I don't know if I don't know if for some reason she wasn't getting her insulin, but you know, sometimes there are these, these clients that go, Oh, we're not, my pet's not eating. So I'm not going to give the insulin and they may not realize that they're not eating because their glucose is high. Yeah. Right. So it's just, um, it is a matter of that conversation and following up with clients. Well, and I think too, that sometimes you do have those clients that just kind of fall through the cracks. They're like, I'll call you back to schedule a yeah. recheck. And then they don't. So you start them off on a low dose of insulin, assuming that they're going to come back for a follow-up or that you're going to touch base, but we get it. All vet practices are busy and yeah, you do try to rely on your clients some. So you send a patient home on three units of insulin, but their normal dose should be like five. So really they've been underdosed for all this time and then they do come in DKA. So it is yeah. pretty important. I like to put in follow-up calls on those patients and mm. I will give some of them my email address just so I can keep touch, especially if they're not well-regulated to begin with. Yeah. That, uh, yeah huge we usually um we usually do a call back the next day after hospitalization mm -hmm. just to make sure there's no questions and then we try to I, I think we try to have the first recheck within a week yeah and then kind of depending on where they're at but yeah I, it, following up with them is 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 really important yeah definitely and then too like so you have those previously diagnosed patients that come in dk and you do want to find out their history. Maybe they were well-regulated on their insulin, but then things have changed. They uh, were boarded and got pancreatitis or they were, they switched vets and they started steroids or they've been vomiting and diarrhea just from some unknown other reason. Pancreatitis. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Stress. If it's yeah. a cat, it can happen. Yeah. Or, you know, they get an infection. So, you know, they get a urinary tract infection and that just sets them all off. You know, hopefully, hopefully they don't haven't developed cancer right yeah that, yeah that could potentially set them off so there's a lot of things that you know can, because again it's that insulin resistance that's building up so these so when they actually present like jordan was saying most of the times they're presenting 
through the emergency room or they're presenting at your primary vet and it's an urgent situation. Um, usually they're, you know, lethargic, but most of the times they're, I don't know, most of the times I see them, they're pretty obtunded. They're not, they're not happy and healthy. There's, uh, the, you know, a lot of times these guys are also, they've got vomiting and diarrhea. Mm -hmm. possibly from pancreatitis. If they didn't have it, they're probably going to get pancreatitis because of the high in, the high sugar level is going to make the pancreas mad. Everything um, makes the pancreas mad. <laughs> exactly. Abdominal pain. These guys are usually painful in their belly. They're usually not wanting to eat. They're severely dehydrated. They're, they can have an is increased respiratory rate and heart rate because of that metabolic acidosis, right? We've got more CO2 that's being produced. So they're, they're, trying, to, they're trying to blow that off. So they're, they've got an increased respiration rate. Or if the acidosis is severe enough, they can do slow, deep breaths. And that's called, I'm going to say it wrong, a kusmal respiration. And so that's just, it's a type of breathing where instead of doing, you know, blowing off the CO2, it's, they've actually kind of crossed over to the, I don't, I can't compensate. The other thing too, for these guys, because it is acidotic and because acetones are a ketone body, um, some people can smell it. So they have that mm -hmm. acidic or acetone smell on their breath. I, I, yeah, I can never. Oh, definitely. It. Oh, I definitely can. It's like the renal failure smell, you know, when you like yeah, that one, the uremic thing. Yeah. But it's sweeter. It's weird. Yeah. I mean, yes. Yeah. I have a really bad sense of smell, which is great for the veterinary industry. But Oh, I have yeah. like the best sense of smell. Mm. It's like bloodhound. Oh, yay. I know. I'm like someone pooped in the back of the clinic. I can smell it. <laughs> <laughs> and then these guys are going to probably be in shock because of everything, because of you know, just severe de dehydration and everything that's going on. Yeah. So I think kind of when these patients present, you have a whole list of differential diagnosis. <laughs> yep. Um, <laughs> so many things. So diabetes, diabetic ketosis, diabetic ketoacidosis, chronic kidney disease, because again, that acidosis, that uremic smell that you were smelling, pyometra actually, just that infection in, that's kind of running rampant through throughout the body. Yeah. And, and pyometra, because, you know, you've got that PUPD. So increased respiration, mm -hmm. increased urination, that's super common for pyometra too. So you yeah. need to make sure that they don't have that. But once we rule that out, you know, then we've got these other ones we can work with. <laughs> yeah. Cushing's disease. I know we talked about that correlating a lot during the diabetes episode, mm -hmm. along with the pancreatitis and these kind of concurrent diseases do make treating this a little bit harder, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, so with our pancreatitis, we just need to remember that high glucose does make the pancreas mad along with everything else. Looking <laughs> at it funny. Yeah. <laughs> Poking it. Yeah, exactly. Cholangiohepatitis and then kidney disease, heart disease, and then other insulin antagon uh, antagonistic diseases like being treated with steroids, infections. Yeah. So all of those concurrent diseases are going to make treating DKA that much harder for us mm -hmm. because it's not straightforward anymore. No. Like we could have just treated the DKA, but now we have to deal with all this other stuff, the infections, the heart disease, the kidney disease. Yeah. So Cause unfortunately um, with like a lot of, a lot of those diseases, like one won't get better without the other one getting better first, yeah. but sometimes you have to, you can't treat them the same way at the same time. It's 
like Cushing's disease. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. We, I mean, I, I did copy a lot or in my notes, I copied a lot of the diagnostics from diabetes to DKA because they're essentially the same. So just like with any patient coming in, we're going to get a full chemistry, full electrolytes, a CBC. We're going to get a T4 as well. And then throughout the hospitalization, we're probably going to be checking glucose and electrolytes multiple times in a day. Um, this is where I, I, I know, <laughs> I know my clinic because I'm in California is much more expensive than where Jordan lives, but even there, I'm sure yeah. DKs get really expensive. Oh yeah. We, we have like a, not a, like a base price, but like everybody knows that if they call, we're like, you're looking at a couple thousand dollars easily. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause this isn't, most DKAs are not going home the next day. No, you know, definitely not. these are kids that are going to be, I don't know, I would say minimum four to five days. Oh, definitely. But most of the times a week, some of them two weeks, depending on yeah, how severe it gets. You got to get them on the CRIs, then you got to get them off the CRIs and make sure that they actually tolerate like sub Q insulin. <laughs> and then you're paying your awesome technicians to care for these patients with the tree of life and everything mm -hmm. in between and just checking oh. ketones every day. Yeah, these are expensive cases, but they are, they can be rewarding for technicians. Oh, for sure. Not that anybody should wish to like get a DK to care for, but <laughs> like, <laughs> we don't wish this upon you. No, but if you do, they're, they're, they're from a technician, good learning cases. Yeah. From a technician standpoint, they're really good. Yeah. So upon, I, I don't know about you guys, but we, well, I guess we'll get into like the hospitalization, but we do check uh, serum ketones versus urine ketones Yeah. while they're we, in the hospital. Yeah. We'll do, we'll do, I think it depends on what we got, but most yeah. times we're doing serum. Yeah. Cause in the hospital. morning, I mean, every morning we're generally just drawing general lab work anyway just to mm -hmm. keep an eye on their electrolyte balance and just the rest of their, or their organ function mm -hmm. so afterwards we'll just spin that down and and get some serum from it mm -hmm. and do serum ketones that way yeah and um the other thing we i mean we mentioned this is like making sure your you know cpl spec cpl fpl we're checking for pancreatitis remember for urinalysis that glucose spills over in the urine between uh, 180 to 200 milligrams per deciliter in dogs and over 300 milligrams per deciliter in cats we're going to check for ketones usually i think we usually do this two to three times a day during that kind of initial acute phase mm -hmm. um, i think we maybe do it like just once or twice yeah. And then we, I was going to say, and then we'll back off to like once a day. Yeah. Um, once we but get then, to the lower amounts. I think a big thing with these cases, I know we mentioned it in the diabetes episodes where you really want to rule out a urinary tract infection because mm -hmm. these patients are so prone to getting UTIs mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. if they have a, they could have a concurrent, just raging UTI. So you do want to send that off for culture and get that treated ASAP if that, if that's a yeah. Problem that your patients and sometimes we'll do, we'll do a low colony count. If mm -hmm. we notice their specific gravity is really low, mm -hmm. um, because we're diluting everything out so much mm -hmm. that a lot of times we'll do a, a low colony count if we're suspicious of it. So that's just something that, you know, you can talk to your doctor about and be like, Hey, do you want a low colony count or do you want a regular one? Um, yeah. 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 Just depends well, on too, what the urine looks like. Yeah. 
I love looking at urine samples in the hospital. Mm, nope. No? No. Oh, I love it. No. <laughs> I'll look at blood. Mm, urine. Mm, that's Only because I've, like, gotten good at urine samples. Like, mm. I don't like things that I'm not good at. Duh. <laughs> like, I'm just... All right. Well, I'm not good at, I mean, I'm okay at urine samples. I just, I just don't do it. Yeah. I, I like them, but then kind of leading into, we do a lot of imaging on these patients too. Mm -hmm. So ultrasound, we like to evaluate the liver, the pancreas, the kidneys and the bladder. Cause you can sometimes see what looks like a urinary tract infection within the bladder. It's pretty, yeah, it's pretty interesting to see that. And, and so you do want to rule out things like pyelonephritis too. If the kidneys, the kidneys can look a little angry, but then the pancreas, cause again, that gets very unhappy very quickly. And then just rule out other like neoplastic or con con concurrent diseases that could be causing insulin resistance as well. Yeah, we um, the special tests that are, I guess, diabetic slash DKA specific. So we talked about fructosamine with your typical diabetes ketones. So the keto sticks or the um, what are the other? There's another brand too for the checking your ketones. Yeah, they have the it's like the keto diet. I, th I think they're keto. I think they're diastics. There's one oh, that tells idea. just ketones and then the one that tells glucose and ketones. And I'm pretty sure the diastics tell both and the keto sticks tell just ketones. Yeah. And, and the interesting or the cool thing is you're going to see ketones obviously in the plasma first <laughs> before mm -hmm. it spills over into the urine. Cause again, it depends on, you know, the, the buildup of ketones, whether or not they spill over. Mm -hmm. And then you want to do an acid base. So you want to check and see what the pH is. We have iStat. So um, I think it's the EC8 yeah, that's what that checks to. your blood pH. I don't, I don't know of another. I think that's it. Acid base. I'm, I'm sure, sure there, there's gotta be. <laughs> there's there's gotta definitely be another way. The iStat's simple though. It's like handheld device that you can just take out in treatment with you and run your samples. Yeah. I like, I like the iStats for quick mm -hmm. stuff. And then depending on how low the potassium is, you may want to do an EKG because you're going to see arrhythmias from low potassium. Yeah. Um, so especially, I don't know, I always think, I always think of cats with really mm -hmm. low potassium. Definitely. Um, I think that's because of, well, I also think of high potassium, but, but that's just uh, something to kind of keep in mind too. So cats will come in with that ventroflexed head neck thing that mm -hmm. they do when they have low potassium. That's where their head's just down and they won't, they're not, they don't look mentally appropriate, but it's just because their potassium is really low. We do a lot of K-Max on these patients. Mm -hmm. So K-Max is what we call the maximum amount of potassium you can give to a patient safely. And we'll set that up on a syringe pump, which we can get into a little bit further. But a lot of these patients do come in with a, that low potassium level. So you do want to check an EKG on these patients, especially if you are giving K-Max so you can be sure to monitor for arrhythmias. <laughs> yeah. Don't want to accidentally yeah things. yeah but those ventroflex cats i mean they're instantly fixed when you fix that potassium level yeah it's really cool yeah <laughs> these are just rewarding i love these cases have i, I said when that things go well <laughs> yeah yeah um so we touched on like how hospitalization versus outpatient care i don't think there's such a thing as outpatient care when it comes to dk so it's not uh i would 
I would say not with DKA. I've seen some with diabetic ketosis where they're yeah. not acidotic. Um, and that's like a newly diagnosed diabetic that they're mm-hmm. still eating. Yeah. Um, you know, th- so we can start insulin treatment on them, which that's okay as long as they're not dehydrated and stuff. So I think those are really your only outpatient <laughs> DKA diabetic ketosis patients um your dkas oh god i've had some do amas where they take a dk home and i'm just like okay let us know let us know how tomorrow goes and then sometimes they just like they're like now i found money and they come in the next day and they're like all right let's hospitalize because it's obviously not getting better yeah those are those clients who are just super hopeful that sub q fluids help yeah but like, no, we'll start an insulin and sub fluids and you're like, Oh, but we yeah. have so much going on. That's bad. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. the intense hospitalization, if, like I said, pick lines are great. Central um, peripheral venous catheters or central venous access catheters are good for sampling, mm-hmm. which I like because when you're checking that blood sugar every two to three hours. Yeah. But Sometimes we'll just do multiple catheters because, like I said, the ER will typically transfer something to us and it'll already have a catheter. And if anything, we'll just put another catheter in standard catheter in the other like front leg just so we can do CRIs or we can do we can push drugs through one catheter and give the CRIs and fluids through the other. Yeah. If you're not doing like a jugular central catheter um, with multiple lumens and stuff like that, uh, you're definitely going to need multiple catheters Mm because you really you shouldn't have your insulin CRI fluids. We'll talk about that in a second. (laughs) Um, You shouldn't be having that go through the same fluids as like your other stuff. So we, we usually have at least two, two catheters that you're going to be running different things through, like your regular fluids are going to be in one catheter and then, you know, insulin. Well, yeah. And I think too, like, especially if you have, like, if you're giving antibiotics for something else, like you shouldn't be, A, you shouldn't really be turning off your insulin in order to give Batril over 30 minutes. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and so, but you can do multi-lumen catheters, like saphenous pick lines. Those are. Good. Yeah. Yeah, you can. Yeah. If you have the multi-lumen, then yeah, then you're good. But if you don't have a multi-lumen, you're, you're going to, you're going to need some <laughs> multiple catheters. Yeah. The multi-lumens are nice because I don't know if you guys have ever really looked at them, but like the, the holes are in different places, which mm-hmm. is great. So that, that way you can um, get your sampling without, you know, fluid dilution and all that stuff, which is really cool. I kind of same as Jordan. Most of the times my DKs are transferred to me. Mm-hmm. I very rarely will get them as a primary like consult. Yeah. Um, I have well, had by, one or two, but most of the times they're coming in through the emergency clinic. Yeah. And by the time we get them, like the shock phase is gone. So they're like alive Hopefully. again. Yeah. And uh, so like placing a pick line in one of those patients is not necessarily ideal because we don't want to sedate them to do it. Yeah. So either you I, do it when they're obtunded or. <laughs> yeah. I'm a big fan of the peripheral central line. So the, like, I think they're called the intracath because they tend to tolerate them really well um, because it, it, for the most part, is just as painful as placing a regular catheter. Yeah. Um, and so, now where do you place those at in your patient? Do you place them? I usually place a medial saphenous. Okay. Yeah. See, I've done lateral saphenous before, and those are 
just rewarding when you actually get it in. Yeah. You're like that twist so much and I did it. Yeah. <laughs> like, I was gonna say, I usually, I, I used to do them more frequently, I think on a lateral, but then that where the vein goes from around. the lateral <laughs> to the medial, yeah, <laughs> that hooky curve thing, that's where it always gets stuck and it drives me crazy. Yeah. And I think those, I mean, the lateral pick lines are way better in bigger patients. They yeah. don't, they don't, it's not as easy in like your tiny little multis that you're normally yeah. seeing DK. No. So. And, and you can, I've actually done, I've used the like traditional, like Mila or Mila, yeah. me, triple lumen, double lumen in a peripheral. Yeah. That's long enough in a bigger patient can't really yeah. do it in the small guys, but in the bigger patients you can, which is nice. Or you just place the jugular catheter. <laughs> But again, my internist always... doesn't like jugs. <laughs> so. Yeah, neither my yeah my yeah. my internist is is yeah she's she she's okay with them for some patients, but it's not her go to. Definitely not. We deal with so many bleeding problems. <laughs> I know. I know. I think that's it's like why. <laughs> it's kind of a bummer, but yet my skills for every other vein are so much better. <laughs> like, right? Oh my god! Seriously. Yeah. Anyway, I don't, I don't like working in onco because of that exact reason. Oh, I'm like, you need to hit a jug, but look at that vein. Yeah, I know, right? Like the saphenous yeah. is so pretty. Yes. <laughs> so I mean, obviously, we kind of talked about it. Fluid resuscitation is like first priority in these patients like because yeah. they're usually in shock their electrolytes are all out of whack um and so correcting some of that dehydration status and the serum potassium levels it, it's pretty important to do that and typically you can wait like about two hours to start your your insulin therapy yeah the when i was reading in the canine feline endocrinology they said you want to wait two hours to get you know, your, your hydration and your potassium levels up, but you really don't want to go more than six hours yeah, <laughs> because you want to get the, the insulin in their system to, to treat. Yeah. To fix everything <laughs> else. Yeah. Like you can otherwise you're fix... just going to be chasing it. Yeah. You can only fix the dehydration to an extent before you have to like really work on everything else in order to stop the dehydration. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so insulin therapy, kind of like we talked about, we start with the C CRI. So initial treatment of the BG. If so, the, I, so before we get into that, cause I thought this was interesting. Do you do, so for insulin therapy, do you do, um, IV CRIs or do yeah. you give injectable like, um, IM or sub Q? No, we do IV CRIs. Um, occasionally you fix high potassium with sub Q insulin, right? Or like I am insulin. Oh, I don't know. Is that right? You fix. I don't know. I thought it was interesting because I don't think I've ever done. I am injections. I, we've always done IV CRIs. So I would be curious to see how many techs out there are doing. I am injections. Cause they're talking about regular insulin. Yeah. Every one to two hours. I am, which. So I think that's more like I'm sure that's probably done in general practice. Now I know we've not necessarily in DK, but I have given IM injections of insulin for our diabetic patients who come in for something and we check them throughout the day and we're like, Oh, right. their blood sugar is too high. And so we'll give like some regular insulin, like regular insulin. Yeah. But I don't think I've ever done it for a DK cause we just set up a CRI. Yeah. I was gonna say, I, I use, I do CRIs all the time. So I, I thought that was, 
I thought that was interesting because I don't think I dealt with a lot of DKs when I was in general practice. No. And so we just, I just straight went to IV CRIs and that's what I've always done. Yeah. Um, famous veterinary line. <laughs> like That's the way it's always been done. <laughs> yeah. I was like, huh. Okay. Yeah. So we treat if the BG is excessively high, so greater than five to 600 and then treatment kind of like we talked about earlier where the goal is to slowly decrease that blood sugar, ideally between 200 and 250 over six to 10 hours, just to prevent uh, cerebral edema from sudden plasma osmolarity change. Yeah. I thought that was crazy. I don't think I've ever, I don't think I've personally ever seen um, a cerebral edema from this, but again, I work in a practice where we deal with this quite a bit. Um, I think they were saying you don't want the BG to really change more than 50 points for every hour, which I was like, all right, cool. Good to know. Which, Which when I think back to all my CRIs, my DKs or something, none of them, like you can see like a gradual decline in the blood sugar, which is why we adjust the IV fluids with dextrose and yeah. the insulin levels, I think is just so, I mean, for that reason, exactly. You don't yeah. want the, that change, that rapid change. Yeah. You don't want the rapid change. You still, you, even with the CRIs, we, we kind of, we maintain that blood glucose between 200 and 250. And part of that is also because we want the ketones Mm -hmm. to, we want to bind the insulin to the ketones and drive those and drive that with the glucose into cells and to be used as opposed to just hanging out in the bloodstream, which is is pretty cool. So for these patients, we're giving a CRI of insulin as well as adjusting a dextrose CRI. So we're giving them sugar too, to drive that, that blood sugar up a little bit and kind of work with the insulin together versus having a rapid drop and then having to give a bolus of dextrose. So we're doing a gradual, Mm -hmm. it's, it's a fun game of let's switch between 0% dextrose, two and a half percent dextrose and 5% dextrose (laughs) (laughs) just to maintain like a good level of, of blood sugars just to help and drive those ketones out of the body. Yep. So like we talked about the separate IV catheter for insulin infusion and then one for the fluids or sampling and um, checking glucoses. Yeah. So when we're setting up our, our CRI of fluids, we're going to use a 0.9% saline and then we're going to use regular insulin. So this is insulin, the one with the R not it's a type of insulin it's not it's not just regular insulin it's It's not regular insulin it's (laughs) regular insulin (laughs) and for dogs the dose is 2.2 units per keg for cats it's 1.1 units per keg you're going to add that to the a 250 mil bag of saline and this is really important once you hook up your fluid lines you're going to want to run about 50 mils of the fluids through the lines and out just like into the trash the sink. into the sink <laughs> um, because the insulin actually sticks to plastic so we want to make sure we run it through so that the the fluids still have insulin in them by the time it gets to the patient so what we basically do is we coat the lines with some insulin. Mm -hmm. So it gets to our patients. And with these CRI bags too, you want to use a one mil syringe. You don't want to use an insulin syringe to inject this into the bag because you're not, the needle's too small. You're not going to get it into the fluid bag. 
So we use a one mil syringe. Yeah. We have some insulin syringes that have really long needles that actually yeah. gets for far enough. But if you're doing that, you want to make sure that you're, you know, aspirating back, pushing, aspirating back, pushing. Yeah. 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 I do um, that with a regular syringe anyway. Yeah. But so 0.1 mils, 0.1 mils is e equivalent to 10 units. Mm -hmm. So do that math and, um, yeah, so just, we'll have a it depends on how small your patient is too. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. It's fun to drop. Like if we have like a <laughs> tiny, tiny patient and I'm like only giving, well, 0 0.05 mils of insulin into a bag. That doesn't happen yeah, very often. And I mean, you can always, you can always take like the insulin from an insulin syringe and then, you know, have a one mil syringe with yeah, some and saline, inject it into there, put it in there and then inject it. That's fine because you want to yeah. make sure you're still accurate with your insulin dosing. Um, yeah. Don't, don't mess with insulin dosing. Yes. And the other big thing about this is your insulin bag, your CRI bag needs to be changed every 24 hours. So that's mm -hmm. not the same bag that's on a patient for four days. Every 24 hours, you have to, you have to replace the bag with a new bag. Um, part of that is because of the insulin reacting in the bag and, and it's at room temperature and just everything. So we, we change it out once a day. Mm -hmm. And with these patients, we do start the normal long acting insulin, um, once these patients start eating mm -hmm. and then we can also discontinue IV fluids. Sometimes we'll just keep them on IV fluids to maintain them if their appetite's just so, so, but they're eating enough to get insulin. Yeah. But a lot of we just put them on like maintenance. Yeah, exactly. That's to make yeah. sure. Yeah. And then strict monitoring of that, those blood sugars, our clinic yeah. has like a specific chart like chart yeah. yeah that we follow so like <laughs> if the blood sugar is greater than 250 this is what you set your insulin to this is what dextrose they need to be on um which is zero if it's greater than 250 um <laughs> and so we follow the chart pretty strictly yeah which, we we always say oh we're doing the dka protocol like we have that form and we just yeah follow the form which the is one so frustrating when i get a patient and their blood sugar is like 249 and i was like I'm just going to have to change this again in two hours, but like, <laughs> you're like, Oh yeah. The other thing, um, I don't know. And, and it may just be my form. I don't know. Um, depending on which doctor, you know, the doctor that you work with, because that insulin or that DKA protocol has both, you know, your regular fluids. Plus if you've got some dextrose in it, or you've got your insulin, make sure that you know what your total volume of fluids mm -hmm. needs to be. Yeah. Um, so just confirm, you know, are we doing maintenance? Are we doing twice maintenance? What, you know, what do we want our total volume to be? Because you yeah. don't want to, you know, just adjust one of them, but not the other. And now your fluid totals per hour are different. So just yeah, make sure you kind of keep that in mind. We set it up on our chart where we'll have like the dextrose line. So we write the percentage of dextrose in the fluids. Then we have like the insulin volume. And then we have the total volume of fluids that the patient's supposed to be on per hour. And mm. we'll subtract the insulin from the total volume. That's so good. we have like essentially three lines across our treatment sheet. So like I said, we'll write like 0% dextrose and their insulin's at 10 and 10 mils an hour and then their total fluid volume should be 12 mils an hour so then their normal fluids is only on two mils an hour nice yeah so. yeah and so that's you know in your clinic if you don't have a protocol or a chart that's a great thing to do to have and we may i may talk to jordan and see if we let's come do up it. with a chart and for you guys to just have it in your you know in the treasure trove we'll we'll make something 
And then I think with these patients too, with the double catheters, we do strict monitoring the, of the IV catheter site just for phlebitis mm-hmm. and infection because these patients are so prone to it, yeah. especially if you're giving dextrose. And like I said, a lot of these patients are getting IV antibiotics as well. So yeah. we do try to keep an eye on those catheter sites. Yeah. And part of that too, if they start to blow, um, dextrose is really irritating to tissues. Um, so you'll get you'll get some pretty, pretty inflamed tissues if you're not paying attention to your, your catheter sites. And then glucose curves. So these glucose curves can be done every one to two hours, just kind of preventing trauma as best we can, which is where tip freestyle Libre comes in handy. <laughs> yes. I think these, uh, these we, yeah, definitely. Have you used the freestyles yet? Unfortunately, not in a DK, but I've sent clients home with them with our like normal diabetics. I want to use them in a DK because it saves them the poking every two hours. I am so excited. We just got the Freestyle Libres like in our clinic in the last two weeks. <laughs> and it's funny because we, I think we set our inventory to like three or four and mm-hmm. I blew through them within 24 hours because I was like, oh, we have them now. And um, I did use it on a DK, which was awesome. I was very yeah. excited to use it on my DK. It'd be amazing. And especially like if it's accurate with your alpha track, like, cause we compare for the first couple and then. Yeah. The one thing just listening to, you know, our ECC friends, cause <laughs> they deal with a lot of this. You want to make sure that your patient is rehydrated before using a freestyle Libre or any other continuous glucose monitoring device, because it's not going to be accurate at that point because if their interstitial tissue interstitial tissues are not hydrated, you're not going to get correct numbers. Um, and the freestyle Libre, because I I went in depth on on looking at this, it measures interstitial mm-hmm. glucose, not blood glucose, but it is very similar to blood glucose. Um, but you'll see changes more rapidly in your blood than in your interstitial. Cause again, crossing your blood vessels, it, it does require a little bit of time to get osmolarity changes, mm-hmm. but it's still amazing. <laughs> yeah. Which is where though, too, like, I guess if you have the ability to do a sampling catheter, mm-hmm. do one of those initially, and then that'll last you probably the pet's entire stay. Yeah, we, we had a sampling catheter in, but it was a small patient. Mm -hmm. And so we just didn't want to draw that much blood every one to two hours. So we, we, we placed the freestyle Libre, but we still had the sampling catheter for For like like our electrolyte checks and our full chemistries that we were running. So, and just, you know, spot checking to make sure our glucose numbers on our freestyle was the same as. Yeah. blood glucose so which is true when you when you have a sampling catheter you do have to draw excess amounts for doing just a blood sugar because you want to draw out what is what do they say so you want to draw what like the dead space of the catheter is yeah i think it's like a half a mil to a mil mm -hmm. we um we try to be as aseptic as possible yep and then using a little bit of heparin in the syringes um, sometimes we'll give it back to them, but you need to be really careful because you don't want to do a ton of heparin in these patients yeah. either. So it's a fine balance. 
Yeah, that's the tricky part of sampling catheters. They are great, but you do have to take ex excess blood and then maintaining them takes, takes work mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and careful monitoring. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. And then, so we monitoring electrolytes, we do that pretty much every morning for these patients, because again, they can become, they can have low potassium levels. Like we kind of talked about previously uh, they can have sodium levels that are low. So dogs, 60 to 65% of these patients, these dog patients are hyponatremic and 80% of felines are hyponatremic. Yeah. Um, so we do tend to supplement these uh, patients with full strength saline. And then our potassium. So you talked about K-Max. Um, mm -hmm. One thing that when we're talking about adding potassium or anything, to our fluids, I always check with my doctor to say, are we adding it to the fluids or are we QSing? Because especially with potassium, like LRS has four milliequivalents, whereas Normar mm -hmm. has five. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, it's just one milliequivalent, but you're still it makes trying a huge to difference be sometimes. appropriate, right? And so you want to make sure that you know from your doctor, are we QSing to 20 or are we adding 20? Mm -hmm. um, you know? So those are we, just things to make sure you know. In these patients, we do a lot of buretrols so mm, we can adjust yeah. the dose accordingly, like per pretty much per day or per blood draw. Um, same, I mean, to yeah, go along with the dextrose adjustments too. Buretrols are only good for the small patients. If we have a large dog and we're changing that buretrol every 40 minutes because their fluid rates yeah. so high, <laughs> it, it doesn't, it's not the same. Those dogs, oh, I feel bad for big, giant, large breed DKs because- they're so much more expensive. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can, one thing that I've done previously, and, and this is just, you talk to your doctor about is like, let's say you have a five liter bag of LRS or Normar or whatever you have. You can have a one liter bag with like a Buretrol that you're adjusting your phosphorus, your potassium, your sodium and stuff like that in that Buretrol. Mm -hmm. And then just adding that amount to you know, a larger volume of resuscitation fluid. So mm -hmm. you can have like that and then your insulin bag and then your blah, blah, blah. And then your blah, blah, blah. So you can, you can, you can get frugal sometimes with it. So it just kind of depends. Again, tech skills. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and then these patients, I mean, you want to monitor phosphate and magnesium supplement as well, which I learned when I was studying for my test, they can have low magnesium and low potassium, but the potassium won't correct until you correct the magnesium. Yeah. Which is kind of crazy. So and if you have one of those patients where they're like just hypokalemic and nothing is working, then you want to really look at those magnesium levels. Well, and magnesium's not in your, well, it's not an R like Chem mm -hmm. 17 that no. we run in house. So this is like a separate slide. So yeah. just, you know, think in the back of your head, be like, Hey, do you want to check a magnesium level? And then do we need to supplement it? And your doctor will be like, good job. <laughs> <laughs> and then, I mean, same thing with the phosphate though, too. Some of those severe DKA patients just need that like sodium phosphate. And we set those up on CRIs as well, just to it's a short CRI, but we do it and then usually corrects. And then we don't ever have to do it again. We're going to be monitoring urine output 
on these guys. Uh, we're going to look at look for ketones. We're going to look for glucose. We're also going to just make sure they're urinating. <laughs> so a because like especially if they're severely dehydrated when they start, we may need to just see if they're we've caught up and they're producing urine again because sometimes sometimes it can get pretty scary for a little while. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think just kind of patient care in these patients is super important because yeah. they do come in obtunded. They're urinating on themselves. We want to monitor their body weight to make sure that we're not fluid overloading them because mm -hmm. we're giving so much. Usually mm -hmm. you want to monitor their blood pressure and their PCV because again, fluid overload and uh, you can really kind of quickly overdo it <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> in some of these patients. And then just general like hygiene, you want to prevent pressure sores. Um, and by rotating them and passive range of motion, heat support if needed. A lot of these patients do come in cold, especially cats, mostly cats. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They're like, bring us back from the depths. Yeah. <laughs> and then just really kind of preventing that urine and fecal scald. And then again, checking those IV catheter sites, especially if you're placing a lateral or medial softness catheters, we like to keep those wrapped with cling wrap just to keep them dry. Yeah. Yes. Um, and then we'll change those bandages pretty fre frequently because they're usually urinating on themselves. Sometimes we'll do urinary catheters in these kids, mm -hmm. like, especially if they're not moving, they're just urinating on themselves. We'll put a catheter in, but you know, we, it's, you don't have to, it's yeah. not like it's a requirement, but we definitely will do it for some of these guys that are just urinating. Don't want to get up. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The urinary catheters can be such like a lose-lose sometimes because you want to prevent a UTI from them like laying in their urine. Yeah. But then you can cause a UTI from placing a urinary catheter. You're like, oh, great. Yeah. But <laughs> if you're monitoring stuff. your patient adequately and keeping them clean, it should be okay. I, I think so for client communication, the client communication really needs to start early in the process. Mm-hmm the client needs to have clear expectations of what is going to happen with hospitalization and long-term management. So yeah. if, if they don't realize how expensive it is going to be for them to be in the hospital and also remember we're not curing diabetes most of the times, especially if they're in DKA, you know, just making sure that they understand what it means for long-term, just like similar conversation with our diabetic, just straightforward diabetics. Mm -hmm. We need to make sure that we're having that, that conversation. And if we've got some comorbidities going on, we need to have that conversation too. And decreases our prognosis. If we mm -hmm. have those comorbidities going on that, that we need to be worried about. Yeah. I think clients are really tend to be heartbroken over the length of time that's usually required for these patients. And then um, just kind of expecting to go home, like just fixed and they don't. Uh, so it definitely needs to be discussion pretty much upon intake on these patients. They're going to be predisposed to hopefully not having DKA again, but I mean, they're going to pre be predisposed to it because they obviously were that extreme, have that much insulin resistance that it's going to be a problem. So mm -hmm. it's important to go over with these patients to keep insulin on a schedule. So the pet health journal can help for that. Um, like we mentioned previously in episode seven and eight, and then just kind of long-term treatment, really just vacations are going to be different and treatment for your pets going to be different. Your day-to-day -day life is going to be different. So really trying to make your clients feel comfortable 
with what they're getting into, which we talked about pretty, pretty in detail for kind of the discussion you need to have with your diabetic clients. That is, it's a huge part of this disease process and they need to feel pretty comfortable with it. And that should definitely be discussed early on in the DKA process. So, yeah, I mean, ideally if you have a client handout on diabetes, hopefully you can give this to them as they're being hospitalized so yeah. that they can start reading it, start digesting it. Cause I don't know about you, but anytime my pet was had differential diagnosis or diagnosis, first thing I wanted to do was I, I started researching about the disease and that was even before they came home. <laughs> so, yeah. so yeah. give them good information, give them those tools and resources. Yeah. And keep them open to talking to you, you know, if they mm-hmm. have questions and if they do decide to change their mind after 24 hours, that those ones kind of suck just because you're like, but they're better, but yeah. you know, eh, I get it. It's hard. <laughs> it's the tip of the week. So this week's tip of the week, I think we have two that I can really think of unless there's any more that you would like to add. So first is going to be pick line, which is pretty cool because <laughs> I didn't realize I use them all the time. So a peripherally inserted central catheter. Uh, mm-hmm. It's great if you have multiple lumens or you've got a couple of different fluids going on for, for blood sampling. Um, we use these for our DKs all the time. Do you use them for your for your uh, DKAs and stuff as well? Unfortunately, not as frequently as I would like because like I said, they're usually feeling better by the time we get them. And then mm-hmm. so to like have to like poke them for an actual central line is pretty difficult that we can usually get by with like one or two just regular catheters. But mm, okay. I'm a big fan of the other tip of the week, which is a continuous glucose monitor. There's several different types out there, but I think the most common one being used in veterinary medicine right now is the Freestyle Libre, which is being studied over in England, right? For veterinary use. I'm pretty sure I read that somewhere. Oh God. I think because, yeah, I think right now it's such a hot topic. There are going to be studies that are coming out. I know I put together a handout and we'll put that on um, the website as well. So make sure you get your password for the technician treasure trove and you can totally have this as well. It, yeah, I, I think the freestyle Libre, I think because it is for humans only right now, mm-hmm. I think they really are studying to make it for animals because, oh God, it's magical. <laughs> it makes life so much easier. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if you guys haven't um, used it yet, I definitely recommend checking it out. It's, it's much better than the uh, previous glucose monitor or continuous glucose monitoring systems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. those are really, really good systems. So, and now for the question of the week. And then this week, we're going to switch it up a little bit for the question of the week. We are, you know, we're setting up our content for the new year. And so we would love to hear from you guys what your what your goals are, or, you know, what your preferences are for hearing on the the podcast. We have some ideas where, you know, we may, we may do kind of a six episode series in a certain, what would you call it? Like topic? Yeah. Like just a general zone of disease. So like GI disease, urinary disease, et cetera. So we would definitely like to hear what you guys would like us to talk about just because it'll give us some really good ideas and especially some, I mean, there's some things that we don't think to talk about. So we would love to hear from you guys on what you want us to say. So if you would like to tell us what you think, you can leave a comment at imfpp.org slash show notes or internalmedicineforvettext.com slash podcast show notes. 
And then of course, don't forget to go over to imfpp.org slash join us in order to have access to the technician treasure trove. That way you can kind of get access to all these handouts that we discuss throughout our episodes. But like I said, leave a comment, let us know what you'd like us to talk about. And then join the podcast Facebook group too. Uh, join us on Facebook. So uh, definitely the the podcast group. So uh, Facebook and then check out Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. Uh, it's linked from our main, main page, but you can also find us under the group setting. And that is where we share about the podcast, anything, you know, related to what we're talking about. Uh, but yeah, there's a, there's a growing community of technicians there that, that all listen to podcasts as well. Yes. All right. Well, I think, uh, I think that is the end of the episode unless there's anything else you can think of that we need to talk about. I think that's a wrap. All right, guys have a wonderful week. Uh, do your best to keep your pets and patients alive during the holiday season right and uh we will <laughs> right the holiday season where everything must live until christmas where it seems like uh, every day <laughs> is a full moon <laughs> oh yeah all right guys you keep strong during the holiday season and we will talk to you next week have a great week guys bye bye Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you like what you heard, we'd love for you to share with someone you think might enjoy the podcast and make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Want to give us a boost? Please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher and we'll be sure to say thank you. Find out everything about us at internalmedicineforvettechs.com. Talk to you next week. Bye.